Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Having looked at each of the Gospels, we're now looking at the Acts of the Apostles. And I remember when we were looking at the Gospel of Luke, you reminded me that the Acts of the Apostles was also written by Luke and, and for a person in particular. Yeah, that's right. And we told about it right at the beginning of this book. Uh, it begins in my th- former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. So there's our little introduction. Theophilus, this guy that we saw in Luke's gospel, probably the guy who'd sponsored the writing of the gospel, a, a wealthy official who'd put his money into that and who was probably a new Christian. Luke carefully researched stuff and uh, recounted this story of Jesus for him. But now he's going to go on to tell how the story continued because Luke's gospel ended up with Jesus commissioning his disciples and him returning to heaven in the ascension. And note there in those words that I read, he puts, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So the implication of that, obviously, is he began it, but he hasn't finished it. And how does he finish it? How does he carry on? He does it, Luke is going to show us, through the church. And that's the story he tells in the book of Acts. How thankful should we be to Theophilus? Oh, I think enormously thankful. I think if he'd not invested in the kingdom, as it were, we'd be a gospel short. And we would certainly know nothing about the early church, how it grew phenomenally, but also how it faced difficulties at times, both internally and externally. So, you know, God bless that guy for being stirred to use his financial resources to sponsor Luke to help pay for the parchment and the ink and and the people who would have actually done the physical writing of this. Uh, had he not done that, we'd certainly be much the poorer. So he enabled Luke to put Acts together, as it were, the Acts of the Apostles. Just briefly, what's the kind of story arc? There's a really clear arc in this story. It starts with picking up the story just at the end of Luke. So it's like Luke and Acts overlaps slightly. It begins by telling us that in the 40 days after Jesus's resurrection, he spent that time teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And now, shortly, just before he goes back to be with his father in heaven, he gathers his disciples and he says to them, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they start to get excited and thinking, oh, Lord, does that mean you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking old messianic terms still. But he says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in that sentence, there's the arc of the story. You will receive power. So chapter two is the story 
of how the disciples were empowered through receiving the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the phenomenal evangelistic impact that this made. And the next few chapters are all then about how that gospel spread out exactly where Jesus said through Jerusalem and Judea. So really the first seven chapters of Acts are located in Jerusalem and Judea, the area round about it. In chapter eight, you've got, I often imagine this as like someone who drops a stone in a pond, you know, and the ripples go out. Concentric circles. And, and, and this is the next concentric circle. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. In chapter eight, we find Philip going down to Samaria, taking the gospel there. Samaria, remember these people that were so despised by the Jews. They were sort of seen as half Jews at best. But the gospel goes there and it impacts them. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Jesus had said. And in chapter nine, we get the first turning point that will make that possible in the conversion of what will become the Apostle Paul and his call to become an apostle to the Gentiles. Chapter 10, the story of Peter going to the house of the Roman centurion, Roman centurion, non-Gentile, and how he goes there and preaches to them at their invitation and how the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household before Peter has even got to the end of his message. You know, as a preacher, I always think, oh, God, you could have waited till he got to his appeal at least. But <laughs> no, the Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles while he is still speaking. Why? Because I think God wanted Peter to see that these Gentiles did not need to become Jews to be saved. You see, as an Orthodox Jew, one had been brought up in the traditions of Judaism, there is no doubt at all that the first thing Peter would have wanted to do if they'd said, yes, we want to believe in Jesus, is probably to circumcise the men, because that was all he understood. And, and so God gives the spirit before he's even got time to do that. And Peter suddenly realizes, wow, these people have received the Holy Spirit in the same way as we did at the beginning. They must have received Jesus. Right, let's baptize you. So here's a key turning point in it reaching the gospel, reaching the Gentiles. And then a really big turning point comes from chapter 13. Chapters 13 to 28 focus very much on the Apostle Paul, that guy who was converted back in chapter 9 and how from his base at Antioch to the north of Israel, how there at that multicultural church, Antioch was at a, a crossroads and there were people from all sorts of cultures passed through. And so Antioch would become one of the key churches in the New Testament. Actually, it would eventually overtake Jerusalem. Jerusalem had always been the centre of all the activity happening. But Jerusalem became somewhat inward looking. It really found it very hard to say that Jesus had said anything other than you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Jerusalem and Judea and Jerusalem and Judea and forgot the next bit. But Antioch was a, 
a, a sort of a multicultural, outward-looking, big vision church. And so from chapters 13 to 28, we get the story of how this church got behind Paul and his traveling evangelistic teams as they went out on at least three missionary journeys we are told about until eventually through all the ups and downs, Paul is eventually arrested and taken to Rome. And the book ends up in Rome. It had started in Jerusalem. It ends in Rome, but it ends in Rome with Paul under what we would call these days house arrest. So he's there in a private house. He's got soldiers guarding him. He's not in jail as he will be later in his life, which we pick up from his letters. But there in this house, the book ends up with these words. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's under house arrest, but it's like Luke is saying, but even there, the gospel couldn't be stopped. Here is Paul now at the center of the world, as far as they thought in those days, Rome, the center of its great empire. And there is Paul in the place he had longed to be in Rome, preaching the gospel there to anyone and everyone who would come. Here is truly a stone dropped into the pond with the ripples going out and out and out. And the message of Axes, despite every challenge and difficulty and opposition, this is a gospel that simply cannot be stopped. And Luke, who's the author behind it, is, is actually in Rome as well, is he? You said Paul is in Rome, Luke's in Rome writing this. Yes, we find uh, Luke actually joins Paul at one point on his journey and suddenly the text changes from they did this, they did this to we did this. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly a point where Luke links up with Paul and becomes one of his faithful traveling companions and, and one of his sort of faithful communicators of the message that he has to bring. So he's talking in the first person at the end to demonstrate that he's, again, an eyewitness, really, to, to these things. Yes, he had seen so much of it. Some of it, just as with the gospel that we saw, he'd carefully researched these things. So he's not around there in the early chapters. Uh, and so that is based on careful research and talking to people. And again, incredible accuracy. I said when we were looking at the gospel of Luke that Paul uses very precise terminology for for people and places and so on. So he's done that research carefully. But in chapter 16, it's at the point where Paul has his vision of the man of Macedonia who says in a dream at night, come over and help us. Paul had felt so frustrated in chapter 16 that in what we would now call modern Turkey, it tried to get in here, it tried to get in there and it just wouldn't open up. And he has this vision at night to go over to Macedonia, to go over to Greece, crossing across the Bosphorus there into what we today would call Europe. And it's at that point that we read these words. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. So we know that at least from that point, Luke is one of his companions 
and he's seeing stuff firsthand and recording it for us. And listening to your sort of very helpful summary of the whole of the book of Acts, uh, it sounds like there are two key players, if you like, uh, two key characters, Paul that you've just referred to and Peter uh, earlier on. This is Peter, of course, the fisherman who <laughs> he denied Jesus from the gospel accounts and everything else. And, and now everything's very different. <laughs> Absolutely transformed out of his experience of the resurrection. And I think out of his experience that we see at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 21, when he feels deeply the shame of having denied Jesus three times and Jesus recommissions him three times at the end of John's gospel and calls him to go and feed his sheep and says that God is going to use him. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. But, you know, at that point, he'd he'd probably got the will and the desire to do it, but he'd not got the ability. And that's where Pentecost comes in in chapter two. It's while the new believers are all together on the day of Pentecost, I think almost certainly not in the upper room, but probably gathered in either the temple steps or in one of the great courtyards at the temple. Why? Because thousands of people are suddenly listening to their message. There is only one place in Jerusalem that could gather that sort of numbers, and that was the temple courtyards. And as the Holy Spirit falls on them and there's wind and fire and and the apostles, the disciples suddenly start speaking in languages that they had never learned before and people hear the gospel and, and they all come rushing over and saying, here, what, what's going on? And some say, ah, they've just had too much wine, they're drunk. And it's Peter, Peter who gets up along with the 11 and he says, fellow Jews, you know, we're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's far too early for that. No, what you have just seen and experienced is what the prophet Joel spoke about, that in the last days, the Lord says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And, and, and this is that that he promised. And he then goes on to preach about the Lord Jesus. And he is incredibly bold in his preaching because he talks about this Jesus who was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs. And you, together with wicked men, handed him over to be crucified. Crikey, that was a bit bold, wasn't it? You did this. But he goes on to say how what they meant for evil, God meant for good and how God didn't abandon his son in the grave, but rather God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of this fact, exalted to the right hand of the Father. He's received from him the promised Holy Spirit, which he's poured out on us now. Therefore, let all Israel know this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And chapter 2 tells us that people are cut to the heart and say, what have we got to do? And there's this powerful word that is still as powerful today for anyone who wants to know I've heard the message of Jesus what do I need to do and Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you too can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit repent 
Acknowledge your sins, turn away from them. Be baptised, that physical, tangible expression uh, of what has happened to you on the inside. Be assured of the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that actually happened that day. 3,000 people said yes to that that day and were immediately baptised. And again, an indication it probably was happening in the temple because all around the temple were loads of baptism pools for the Jewish religious washing. So what an incredible transformation in this guy. What courage on that day. What courage to stand up with thousands of people and say, you killed God's Messiah and God raised him from the dead. But the spirit was at work. People responded. 3,000 saved that day. The next day he's going to the temple uh, with John and there's this miraculous healing uh, of a man. And again, he takes the opportunity to preach. In chapter four, he's, he's brought before the Jewish religious council. And there's an interesting little passage there, David, where it says these, the council, the, that's all the great religious leaders who've had their teaching, says when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. Now, we perhaps could translate that today. They were untrained laymen, they were saying. Hmm. They had had no theological training like the rest of them had. They were astonished and they took note that they'd been with Jesus. There was something about their lives, their character, their faces, their courage that spoke far louder than any theological training or education and they simply have to let them go and they go back home and they have a great prayer meeting together and the very house is shaking. What a transformation for this guy, Peter. I was going to say it must bring a smile to your face to see the difference between the Peter you read about in the Gospels and this Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, it is incredible, but I think the even more incredible thing is what Peter says, that what happened to these guys can happen to whoever will put their trust in Jesus and whoever will receive the Holy Spirit. You know, and if there's someone listening uh, to this program that you've had a life that you feel you've wasted, you've messed up, stuff's gone wrong, you've had bad things done to you, you've done bad things, don't write yourself off because you too can be transformed like Peter was through putting your faith and trust in Jesus asking him to forgive your sins, being sure he's done that and asking him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Peter said that this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. We're far off in years and in miles, but the promise is still as powerful and still as real today as it was when Peter first said those words. How does Luke record the fact that these first Christians were putting their lives literally on the line. Yeah, well, you know, we get great stories in Luke with powerful salvations, 3,000 saved, 5,000 saved, this one healed, that one delivered of a demon. It is absolutely great. But interwoven with all of these stories, Luke shows us that there was a cost and a price to pay at times. And we, we saw when we were looking at the Gospels how Jesus had said that whoever wanted to follow him would have to be ready 
to take up their cross. There would be a cost to this. And do you know what? It, it comes out again and again in the book of Acts. So in chapter three and four, we find Peter and John arrested for what? For healing someone. For healing someone in the temple where they had no, quotes authority to do it. Now, you know, that's a bit unpleasant, uh, but, you know, it, it's not the worst. That There is more that will happen. The apostles, too, were arrested and commanded not to speak about Jesus in chapter 5. But, my goodness, by chapter 6 and 7, we find Stephen, uh, one of the godly men who were appointed to be one of the seven uh, who were there to run the food bank in Jerusalem, we would say these days, to distribute food for the poor widows. And uh, Stephen is not only arrested, we find that he is stoned for blasphemy. He speaks boldly about Jesus and he has this vision of Jesus as the Son of Man standing at the right-hand side of, of the Father. And the religious authorities see this as blasphemy, daring to claim that this Jesus is at the right-hand side of God, in other words, equal with God. Uh, and sadly, Stephen is stoned to death, the first martyr of the church. In chapter 8, we find a severe persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem as a consequence of Stephen's stoning. They, the opponents were obviously feeling emboldened by this. In chapter 12, we find James is killed by Herod Agrippa. Later in chapter 12, we find Peter arrested by Herod, but then miraculously released. In chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas imprisoned. Why? For the audacity of freeing a slave girl from an evil spirit that kept her in bondage, but she was being used by those who owned her as a way of making money. And suddenly their means of making money had gone and they stir up trouble and Paul and Silas end up thrown in jail. God releases them miraculously through a, a nicely timed earthquake. Some of Paul's companions are manhandled because of Paul's preaching in chapter 19. And then, of course, Paul, the last few chapters of the book are all about Paul being arrested uh, and then going through various trials and eventually appealing to Caesar, who says, I've had enough of this as a Roman citizen. I'm appealing to Caesar. So clearly here, Luke is wanting his readers to know that while Christianity works, while it makes a difference, while it changes life, the truth is not everyone will like its message, not everyone will receive its message, and there will be some who will outright oppose it, even to the point where they are ready to kill you. Which makes me think of Paul himself. Wasn't Paul, who was persecuted, in what you've just said, a persecutor? Yeah, this is the amazing thing. You know, at the end of the story about the stoning of Stephen, as everyone's gathering around to do it, there's this telling little verse right at the end of chapter 7, or in, in some editions, it's the very first verse of chapter 8, and it says, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And as chapter 8 goes on, 
it tells us that on that day, a great persecution broke out against the apostles. And Paul becomes very involved with that. Chapter nine, we read that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's a really sort of graphic terminology, isn't it? Saul became Paul. Saul became Paul. Uh, so this is the same guy that we're talking about there. It says he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So here is a man who is so passionately committed to the old Jewish ways that he cannot conceive that this Jesus is the Messiah. And actually he feels that all the followers of Jesus are deluding people. So this is not just, oh, I hate Christians. He, he is on a mission to stop people deluding people and taking them away from God is the passion in his life. And so he gets these letters of authorization to go and start hunting down Christians, rooting them out. You know, still has happened through church history. And it's on his way to Damascus. Why Damascus? Because Damascus was at a crossroads. And Saul knew that if the gospel reached Damascus, there'd be no stopping it. It, it could spread to all the corners of the earth. And so he's on his way to Damascus, resolved to stamp out this Christian sect once and for all when he has that incredible encounter with Jesus and when Jesus knocks him off his horse and he has this vision and this blinding light and he says, who are you, Lord? And he hears these words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Man, I cannot even begin to think what he must have felt. The very one he believed was dead, buried, was actually there in front of him, speaking to him. And suddenly he realized that the one he had been opposing was not dead. He was alive there in front of him. And he's about to give him a call to become the apostle to the Gentiles. And although wherever he went, he would always go to the synagogues first and preach the message to Jews as a Jew himself and try to show them from their scriptures that Jesus fulfilled those scriptures, his great calling really was to go to the Gentiles. And so it's very common in those days to have two names anyway, a Hebrew name and a Roman or Greek name. Uh, he starts to use the Greco-Roman name for his work in that community. But you're absolutely right. The persecutor will become the persecuted all out of his love for Jesus. You see, here was the great theological challenge that changed him. As a good Jew, Paul believed in resurrection. He believed that God would raise his people from the dead one day. But when? at the end of human history. But here was Jesus raised, not at the end of human history, raised now. 
And it's as if he has a mental shift because he suddenly understands that what he had always believed would happen at the end of the age was not happening at the end of the age. It was starting to happen now. The kingdom was breaking in. It wasn't here in all its fullness yet, but, but it was here, just as Jesus has said. The kingdom of God is here. It's among you. And suddenly he saw that through this encounter with Jesus, that Jesus had not been raised at the end, he'd been raised now. And so if God was raising people now, then the end must be breaking in now. This was like life in the overlap. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes we see uh, rock strata where the earth has moved and, you know, on a cliff or something, the seaside, we might see one strata of rock has slipped over the other. And, and that's what Paul understands has happened. The life of the age to come is now not just in the future. It has slipped over life in this age. And so we're now left living life in the overlap. We're, we're still in this age. And yet the life of the age has started to break in. It won't come in all its fullness until Christ returns. But it's this sense that we are living life in the overlap, that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Yeah, we still face at times persecution and opposition because we, we're still living life in this age, but we also experience the life of the Spirit and his power to preach the gospel and, and pray for the sick and even raise the dead. These were all things that Paul did. And this sense of living life in the overlap with Jesus will shape the whole of his life and mission and will come out again and again in his many letters that we'll come to in future episodes. So just in summary, the Acts of the Apostles, why would you recommend anybody to read it? Because I think it's not just there as interesting history. Oh, that's interesting to see how the early church began. It's there not just as history, it's there to show us what church can be like. And the truth is, we get a mixed picture. Not everything always goes perfectly. There were times when there was that struggle between the Hebrew Christians and the Greek Christians in Jerusalem about were some getting more food than others. There's that story in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira try to deliberately deceive the church. So we get we get the church warts and all. We, we, we get it as it really was. It's not just an idealised picture. And if it had meant to be an idealised picture, well, I'll tell you what, you'd have cut out Stephen's martyrdom. You would have cut out Ananias and Sapphira. You would have cut out squabbles over food. So this is not an idealised picture. This is a church living life in the overlap. So for me, read this book to get inspired about what the Christian life together in the church is meant to be like. And it's meant to be one where Jesus empowers us and where despite any and every opposition, we have a gospel that is powerful and that can always work, can always change people's lives, and that ultimately will prevail. And that is really exciting and is well worth reading this book for. 
Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.